Tonight's New Testament reading is found on page four in your bulletin. Romans 2, 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others do not teach yourself. When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one, should not, one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. For an extended period of time, uh, we are doing a deep dive in the book of Romans. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you're going to maybe feel uncomfortable with some of the things that we're going to be looking at, but I ask that you be patient as we work our way through this book and uh, mine some rich theological truths along the way. It's a long expedition, if you will, in the gospel of Paul, uh, as some would say. And Paul here in the book of Romans before getting to the good news, that is, uh, that God in Christ has reached out to befriend us, Paul first breaks the bad news. It's important that we don't rush past through it. Because if we don't grasp the bad news of sin, we won't feel the need for the good news of the Savior. And I think Tim Keller's definition of the gospel is helpful here, which is printed in the reflection part of your bulletin. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And I think there are two parts to the gospel, which Keller does a great job in highlighting. First, the bad news, that we are broken, that we're more broken than we could ever imagine. But the good news is that we have a Savior who has come, and he has done something about it. So starting with Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, and for next several chapters, Paul spotlights our sin. First, Paul draws up a caricature of an immoral, lawless, bottom-of-the-barrel type of person, and as he paints this picture of this very needy and, and, and sinful and broken person, you can almost imagine all the self-righteous Jews nodding their heads in agreement, 
Preach it, Paul. That's right. They need the gospel. But they don't see the sin in their own heart. They don't sense the need for the gospel for themselves. And we must not forget that sin expresses itself in different ways. It's easier to see brokenness of sin in some than others. Just as Glenn talked about last week from the parable of the prodigal son. But the self-righteous Jews aren't off the hook. Having just finished uh, addressing the godless pagans, Paul now turns his attention to the religious law-keeping Jews and basically says, now let's talk about you. I mean, talk about a deer-in-headlights moment. They were scared, shocked, exposed. I remember taking one of my kids to uh, a regular checkup, and uh, halfway through, the doctor turned to me and asked, how's your health? And uh, I was like, what? I was nervous. I'm like, you're not my doctor. You have no right to ask me these questions. How dare you? I got really defensive. I'm like... Save those questions for my son here, not me. And that's what Paul is doing. And here, as we look at the rest of chapter 2, we'll see that Paul basically levels the playing field by arguing that these self-righteous, law-abiding, moral Jews are just as bankrupt as the Gentiles, and therefore, they're in need of the gospel. So as we get ready to dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord's help and ask that he would write these words on our hearts and show us our need for the gospel too. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this time. Thanks for your word. And we know that sometimes your word is difficult to hear, but we need it. But we praise you that you don't leave us there. Rather, you offer yourself through your son in the gospel. And Lord, we want to see both tonight. We want to take a good, long, hard look at our hearts and see all the ways that we are more broken than we could ever imagine, but at the same time, to see your pursuing mercy for us and to surrender our hearts gladly to the lover of our souls. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In 1912, it was said of Titanic, the most advanced human engineering up to that point, that not even God himself could sink the ship. We all know what happened. Another example of misplaced confidence, and it's nothing new. We see it all the time. Where did, all, where did this all begin? It started back in Genesis chapter 3 when we ousted God in an act of cosmic treason called sin. And immediately after sin, the passage says, Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves to cover their shame from each other, to hide or to cover their shame, uh, not only from each other, but also from God. You see, they placed their confidence in other things to cope with what I think is divine vacancy in their hearts. They didn't know what to do with what they felt the absence of God, which they couldn't put in words, and this overwhelming shame, guilt, exposure that was right before them. It didn't turn out very well, as we know. And we're guilty of the same things, are we not? 
instead of being honest with God and placing our confidence in the finished work of Christ, we often feel the tension in our hearts to hide in. I mean, the prayer of confession, I think, was spot on. We want to hide in our own righteousness and use them as bargaining chips to receive blessings from the Lord, to feel good about our, ourselves and to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. Look, Band-Aids are useful, but not for cancer. The late Chuck Colson, once known as uh, President Nixon's hatchet man, who later became a follower of Christ and founded a nonprofit ministry and authored many Christian books, once said this. He said, where is our hope? I meet millions of people that tell me that they feel demoralized by the decay around us. Where is the hope? The hope that each of us has is not in who governs us, or what laws are passed, or what great things we do as a nation. Our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. That's where our hope lies in this country, and that's where our hope lies in our life. The hope for the shame of sin that we often feel and we try to hide, even from God and ourselves, is in God. Only He can provide the true and lasting covering that not only covers our nakedness and shame, but it forgives, it heals, it reconciles. And like Adam and Eve, the religious Jews turn to the law and circumcision to cover their shame. And Paul debunks this myth by addressing the folly of misplaced confidence in dead orthodoxy and empty ritual. It's as if Paul says to them, though, the law can't cover you. And circumcision? No, not that either. So let's take a look at these two things. First, dead orthodoxy. In verses 17 through 24, Paul anticipates their first objection, the law. And let's be clear, the law is actually good. It is a good thing. Now, in some Christian circles today, there is a knee-jerk reaction uh, to the law, and they immediately dismiss any talk of obedience as legalism. But the Old Testament Jews saw the law very differently. This is how they thought of God's word. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. I would not neglect your word. I'm a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. This is Psalm 119, the longest psalm, a psalm that celebrates the beauty and the goodness of the law. And there are 176 verses like this. The law indeed is good because it reveals God's heart. It's a window into his character. Take, for example, the command, do not reap to the very edges of your field. This rather strange command reveals God's heart for the weak and the oppressed, the widows and the orphans in their community to make sure that everyone is provided for, even those in the margins of society. And so the law is good. It is good. But when you turn a good thing into a God thing, your salvation, you run into problems. Paul says to the self-righteous Jews that your problem, in verse 17, 
is that you rely on the law. And again, in verse 23, you boast in the law. When we place our confidence in the law, that's called dead orthodoxy. And dead orthodoxy always leads to self-righteousness. Why? Because we value ourselves according to our law-keeping, and we therefore judge everyone else who does not live up to the law as we do. You see, I pride myself in the fact that I come to a complete stop at every stop sign. I'm not going to say her name, but there's a person I live with who also drives who does not <laughs> uphold that law. I always say, you know, if everyone actually came to a complete stop at every stop sign, the world would be a happier place. The sun would be warmer. The birds would sing louder. The green grass would be green. I, it would be a better place, no? See, the problem with trusting in the law boils down to this. The law cannot save. It cannot save. The law actually does the opposite. It condemns even the best of us. Remember what Paul says in Romans 3? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us passes the mark. We're not graded on a curve, and we don't get a trophy simply because we're better than the person next to us. And here's the ironic part in all this. As much as they relied on the law and boasted in the law, they didn't bother obeying it. Paul says, starting with verse 19, you claim to be a guide to the blind, light to those in darkness, instructor to the foolish, teacher to the children. You preach against stealing, yet you steal. You preach against adultery, yet you commit adultery. And this last one, this, is, this really gets me. You abhor, you abhor idols, yet you rob temples. Imagine, I, I read some commentaries where the commentator said, this was actually happening. The God-fearing Jews would go and rob pagan temples and turn it around and sell those idols for a profit. And consequently, verse 24 says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. This is real talk. And these are sober words for us as well. We often think that because of God's grace that our actions don't matter. The Bible says it does. Our obedience counts. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, our actions bear testimony to God one way or another. And I think it would do well for us to examine our hearts to see if, one, we rely on the law, and two, if we have no regard for the law. And I think the gospel has a lot to say about that. But Paul's point here is absolutely clear. Trusting the law is foolish. Then he moves on to the second point, which is empty ritual. Beginning with verse 25, Paul anticipates their second objection, circumcision. Now, circumcision was practiced by other nations and people groups at the time, but God used it as an outward symbol of the covenant and oath for all Jewish males that they actually belong to the Lord. And we read about this in our Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 17. 
The Jews actually took circumcision very seriously. In fact, let me read you this quote. One Jewish rabbi stated that Abraham himself would sit at the entrance of hell to make sure that no circumcised man was ever cast into hell. They took it very seriously. But again, here's the problem with this. Circumcision, this outward symbol by itself was useless. It had to be accompanied by faith, a living faith, a inward reality. Verse 29, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. What does, this, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? I think it means that we live by faith in obedience, embodying the qualities of our commitment to God. In other words, that we take our commitment to God seriously. And even though we would never do it perfectly on this side of heaven, by his grace, confident in his love and secure in his approval for us, that we move into this scary thing called obedience. And here, this is where things get interesting. Then, and only then, can we enjoy the benefits of the covenant. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Did you catch that? In order to enjoy the full benefits of being in covenant with God, being in this relationship with God, we have to obey God. How? Perfectly. Anyone uncomfortable? I know I am. You know what this means? Circumcision, on the one hand, was a sign that we belong to the Lord, at least the Jews would say, but it was also a sign of condemnation because no one could ever meet all the requirements of the covenant. And ever since the beginning, when God made this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he was calling us to faith to believe, to trust in his mercy, not in these meaningless rituals that we go through. Because again, by themselves, they're empty. They're bankrupt. But the self-righteous Jews, Paul's audience, neglected faith in God altogether, and they only gloried in the sign. And Paul says, as a result, you are no better than the Gentiles. This is the worst form of insult imaginable for a Jew, to be a non-Jew, a Gentile. And Paul puts a bow on his argument with a wordplay. In, back in verse 17, Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, the word Jew derives from the word Judah, which means praise. Okay? And later, Paul circles back, uh, circles back in verse 29 and says, such a person, the person with faith, living faith, his praise or her praise is not from other people but from God. You see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying God does not praise you because you have the law or because you are circumcised. No, he does not praise you for that. Rather, he praises you for living faith, which is evidenced in your obedience. 
You could almost imagine Paul at this point dropping the mic and walking off the stage, right? Let me ask you, what are you relying on to bring you in right standing before God? Your ability to keep the law or your religious acts, church attendance, service projects, ministries that you lead or serve in, scripture reading, regular prayer life, These are all good things, and we should strive to be excellent in all of these things, but we ought to never rely on them as a source of merit to earn God's favor or his approval. You see, the problem with relying on religion is that we are all inconsistent at best, and moralism, trying to please God with our law-keeping, will result in constant guilt and fear. We're always going to look back to see if God is proud of us or if God approves of us. And Paul says, that's no way to live. There's a better way, he says. We must rely on Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. And in the coming weeks, we're going to parse this out. And we're going to go deep into what Paul means. But this is Paul's story, his personal testimony. Remember what he said in Philippians 3? He is arguing against those who took pride in the law and circumcision. And he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day are the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, his resume is impressive. And then he follows that up with verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I consider now lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see what Paul is doing? He's basically saying, look, you think you can get on God's good side by your law-keeping and circumcision. No, there's a better way, and that is Christ, his righteousness that is offered to you. And you don't have to jump through all the hoops. You can, in fact, get off that treadmill and come with open heart and open hands to receive freely Christ. We must rely on his mercy for us and boast in his righteousness, both in word and deed, so that others might see our good deed and praise our Father in heaven. And I pray that we as God's people, as we think about Paul's words here, that we would regularly check our hearts to exegete our hearts to make sure that we're standing on the solid ground of mercy and his righteousness, 
that our lifelong and eternal boast would be him and him crucified. Let's pray together. Jesus, we give you thanks for your mercy for us. Thank you that despite our foolish attempts to hide in and to boast in our religion, our morals, you had mercy on us. You gave us yourself. You gave us your righteousness. I pray, God, that we, whether we know you or not, would come and latch on to this good news that you would do that work even now, that you would press this message into the hearts of those who need to hear it, that they would find freedom from moralism, a game that they can never win. In Christ's name, amen.